Welcome to Climate History, the podcast on what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. Today we're joined by Professor Victoria Herman. Professor Herman received her PhD in Geography as a Gates Scholar from the Scott Polar Research Institute at Cambridge University in 2018. She is currently President and Managing Director of the Arctic Institute. A National Geographic Explorer, she led the America's Eroding Edges Project, which identified gaps in national assistance for coastal community adaptation. And she now leads a new initiative, Rising Tides and Rapid Retreat in Fiji. She also directs another project, Rise Up to Rising Tides, an online matchmaking platform that connects pro bono experts with communities affected by climate change. She has two books on the go, who teaches at Georgetown University, American University, and the University Center of the West Fjords, has appeared in many peer-reviewed journals and the popular press, and she was recently named as one of Apolitico's 100 Most Influential People in Climate Policy. So uh, welcome, Dr. Herman, to our podcast. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, how did you discover environmental history? Why did you decide to do a PhD? When I first graduated undergrad, I knew that I wanted to do something on climate change. It was the biggest issue of our generation. And so I came to DC to do work on megacities. So I was working in Beijing and Rio and Mumbai, and it was incredible. But I also realized that cities have a whole lot of resources. And so I switched from the most populated places in the world to the least populated place, the Arctic, where <laughs> Four million people live, but there's lots of space in between those villages, cities, and development settlements. Um, Going into a new region, I had a lot to learn, which is why I decided to pursue a PhD in geography, because I knew close to nothing about the Arctic. I had a very basic foundation in environmental policy, in climate activism and advocacy, but the region itself, its history, its environmental history, its human development, I knew almost nothing about. So I switched over from living in Canada, doing a Fulbright, listening to as much as I could, um, to being formally enrolled in a PhD program at Cambridge, where I listened in a different way and learned (laughs) a whole lot about environmental history as a field and more pointedly, I think, how you move from learning into action. Mm. Mm. Actually, I should have asked this, but what got you interested in climate change to begin with? Just you realize it was one of the most important issues, or is there a special kind of connection that you have to environmental issues? Growing up, I knew that I wanted to do something in human rights generally. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors, Mm. and having the opportunity to go to college to pursue higher education um, really was heavy for me. I had to make the most of being there. I had to make the most of taking my family history and doing something meaningful for them, for myself, for the people that I would be interacting with in college and the decades to come. And I didn't realize that was climate change until freshman year, where I found out climate change was an issue. I had never heard of the term before. Um, But I went to a 
conference, a student-led conference in DC called PowerShift, and I heard some really incredible traditional knowledge holders and indigenous leaders talking about environmental degradation, environmental injustice, climate injustice, and then I realized that climate change is, you know, the holocaust of our generation, right? Mm -hmm. It has the potential to disrupt billions of lives, to have those disruptions be very focused on those who have been targeted throughout history and have a high ecological vulnerability and um, very little political power to realize their visions. So I took that passion for human rights and then applied it to climate change and environmental action. Do you feel like that's changed a lot like in, in terms of students when they're exposed to climate change over the past decade or so. Right? Do, do you see it being very different with your students now? I do, yeah. Mm. So when, when I came into the climate world at large, there was still a lot of hope, right? We had not yet hit 350 parts per million. There was this idea that we would have a successful negotiation of all major countries in the world and we would limit our warming to 1.5 degrees, that we could do this. And I'm really glad that I came in at that moment of hopefulness because I still harbor that close in my heart today and I don't think I would if I came in mm. in 2019 mm. to the climate world mm. because I see that not just with my students but with high schoolers that I work with. Mm. Uh, Right before Thanksgiving, I was giving a talk to high schoolers in New York City. And when I asked them if they were hopeful about the future, they said no. And we had a long conversation about climate grief. And talking to a 14-year-old about climate grief and about being hopeless for the future, they still want to go to college and focus on climate action. They still want to pursue engineering and go into renewable energy. They still want to go into environmental policy. But doing that with having that hopelessness mm -hmm. is both emotionally difficult and also I think to the detriment of seeing the extraordinary things that humans can do mm. if we have the pathways to do them. Yeah. And we have done something extraordinary in a sense, right? We've, we've <laughs> we basically destroyed the Earth system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we have geoengineered <laughs> right. our climate to yeah. the mm -hmm. brink of a new normal. Yeah. So yeah. we have done magnificently terrible things. It is <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary. So how, um, you, br you said you brought the sense of hope to your dissertation. How did that inform your dissertation and can you talk a little bit about what your what your dissertation is and also how you're turning it into a book? Yeah, so my dissertation came out of my grandparents actually um, and their stories when they told me about their experiences in Germany uh, in Auschwitz concentration camp and I went back as a student in college to see what history had remembered, um, right? What newspapers had reported at the time. There was this huge gap in what they were telling me and what the world's audience were learning simultaneously, right? In 1943, when my grandfather was interned in a death camp, the world did not have that news story 
they had a radically different narrative of what was happening. And as I moved into working in the Arctic, I had the sense that that might be the same thing, that what has happened in the North throughout our Western history um, probably wasn't being truthfully reported at the time, right? Indigenous rights, particular development and investment choices were probably going to have a different narrative of what you read in the New York Times or the Washington Post versus what was happening on the ground. And so for my dissertation, I took that question and applied it to the state of Alaska. And I started in the 1940s as Japan was invading the Aleutian Islands and went all the way up to the recent tax vote in 2017, which opened up the potential for drilling in Amwar and compared what big mass media outlets were reporting on events in Alaska and what was happening on the ground at the time. And if those gaps in actuality versus what was being reported were influencing policy and investment that places like Washington, D.C. were deciding hundreds of miles away from what was actually happening. Hmm. What was it like to write that dissertation sort of as things were happening in real time? How often do you have to go back, I assume, and revise sort of up till the deadline, right? Oh, yeah. And in fact, I continue to revise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm turning it into a book because things are moving so quickly. But it's actually pretty exciting because you can do this pulling back and unpacking of layers, especially with the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, of how that conversation began even before Alaska gained statehood, right? In the 1940s, you still have these conversations happening and these photo essays on the potential for oil in Life magazine. And you see that Mm -hmm. evolve through the 1960s when you have a discovery of oil on the North Slope and then the building of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline and finally the Valdez oil spill and this realization that man can do extraordinary things and extraordinary things aren't only the technological sublime of building a pipeline and extracting oil, but devastating ecosystems and fishing villages and the reality for the hundreds of residents that called Valdez and that entire region home. And so going back and rereading that and just the many different pathways that that story takes um, and how they're all now weaving together in the decisions that are being made just down the street from us Mm -hmm. and what the future will hold and also how that will be reported. How will the 2020 narrative, that video essay in the New York Times, show drilling in Amwar? So what is the, what did you uncover about the big difference between um, how things happen on the ground and how they are reported in major newspapers? So not too many big surprises here, mm-hmm. but um, one of the biggest takeaways is that the voices of indigenous leaders, the knowledges of indigenous residents throughout the state of Alaska are grossly underreported in mm-hmm. every mass media outlet from 1943 to present day. There is a skewing of whose voices are elevated from World War II to the Valdez oil spill, where you have 
white Alaskans, but also importantly, non-Alaskans being quoted and their voices being elevated to talk about what's happening in a state that they may have never physically visited. So we see that in Alaska, but I think more broadly, we see that in the history of media, right? Mm -hmm. Whose mm -hmm. voices are elevated, whose voices continue to be elevated, are those voices local? Are they an expression of the diversity of that place? Or do they follow a path dependence of who we have always viewed as the expert in mm -hmm. that area? And that's the main reason why some voices are privileged, because of that path dependency? Or is there something else going on there too? Or? Well, I think that path dependency is rooted in colonialism, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. there is this perception that knowledges are not all equal, right? Western science, scientists, uh, politicians from the lower 48, from Washington, D.C., experts that have been put through our, um, and when I say our, white America's education system, those voices matter more, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the systems we have built up. And we've, when we began in earnest, mass reporting at the turn of the 20th century and for my work uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about visuals and photography, photojournalism, video journalism and who is physically seen and who is existing out of the frame of visibility. We visually focus on the people that we perceive to have power and intelligence and from an American imperial culture, we view those people mostly as white men, but also as white women later on from the 80s onward. Um, and rarely do you think of a knowledgeable scientist in that frame as a traditional knowledge holder, mm. as a UPIC mayor that has a far more intricate knowledge of a changing ecosystem um, than who you're probably quoting in your article or who you're photographing as the lead scientist working on some report. Mm. So how did this kind of work um, lead you to these two major initiatives that you're, I think, doing right now? America's Eroding Edges and Rise Up to Rising Tides. Um, it sounds like the social justice element, of course, runs through everything, but maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, the, the social justice aspect is really what guides all of this work mm. and the America's Eroding Edges project I began alongside my PhD while I was still doing my dissertation. How did you find the time? Uh, <laughs> a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah it's a uh, note to all those PhD students. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> when I first applied to National Geographic which funded America's Eroding Edges, the idea was driven by these invisible climate champions in our narrative about climate change. I proposed this project saying that America has a diverse climate change story that is not being told. It has a few poster child communities that are being elevated. I want to know how communities perceive this climate change story. How do they understand their role in it and what do they view as the solution to developing a more 
inclusive story about a climate changed America and ultimately a more inclusive solution to how we act on the climate impacts that we can no longer avoid. Mm. And so I started that project in 2016 and continued into 2017. And I went all across the United States and US territories from Alaska to American Samoa to Alabama and I interviewed just over 350 local leaders. So those were mayors, uh, traditional knowledge holders, youth leaders, church leaders, anyone who was a leader in their community. And as- While you were doing your PhD. While I was doing my PhD. Uh, so <laughs> was I on campus as much as I should have been during those two years? That sounds like you were. Uh, yeah, I was, I was there just mm. behind a closed door and nobody <laughs> happened to check. Um, so I, I did that and as I was listening to all of these climate champions and local leaders, um, something came out that I did not expect. As I was talking about climate impacts, about the media narrative, about solutions, people talked about what they were seeing on television. They talked about the damage to the bridge and the road and their school, but that's not what they ultimately wanted to tell me. They wanted to talk about how climate change was impacting who they are their identity, the traditions that they were passing down, their historic sites, the culture and heritage that kept their community together. That's what they feared of losing the most because there isn't funding for the things that you can't see that are lost. And I had to think really hard about what to do after you extract 350 interviews from mm -hmm. people. What, what is the point of that research? Is it to write something, to take people's words and elevate them? Is it to work with them to build something that hopefully solves the challenge that you kept hearing? Um, and so in 2018, I started my current project, Rise Up to Rising Tides, um, with many hundreds of colleagues who I interviewed to build out a skills-based volunteering platform to connect those local leaders with volunteer historic preservationists and historians that can help with oral histories and engineers and architects to do some of that historic preservation work in the face of climate change to help communities with adaptation projects that they just couldn't get funding for. So this is year two of that project. We are slowly building up to having it be open to the public and not in our beta mode, which is what we currently are. But the hope is that this can serve as a place where Americans can help other Americans adapt to climate change, even in the face of federal inaction. Hmm. And the storytelling kind of goes through all of this. Um, what is the, the sort of academic component of storytelling and how can people with academic backgrounds contribute to telling and elevating these stories? Yeah, so for me, storytelling is a means of creating more inclusive spaces, right? So alongside all of this 
desk work and being out in the Chesapeake Bay or in southern Louisiana and doing really meaningful work in person. You also have to create spaces that bring more people in because ultimately climate change in 2019 is an all hands on deck situation and storytelling is a way to invite more people into the solution. So any chance that I have to be a storyteller, to get up on a stage, do an interview on um, you know, CNN, to be able to say something that invites people to be part of our story, America's climate change story. And from an academic standpoint, I think this is where the hope comes in, right? Because humans have to have hope for the future of a particular community, of a country, if they are going to invest time and energy into acting. Mm -hmm. So you have to be hopeful that the Alaska Native village on the coast that is facing displacement has a vibrant and thriving future if you are going to spend your days researching what the cost-benefit analysis is of relocation versus some sort of co-location. Mm -hmm. So for academics, understanding how stories influence individuals' decision-making, how you can use stories to build those inclusive spaces, and beyond your own research, how you as a communicator, right, as a student, as a professor, as a researcher at a university, how are you using your voice that is elevated through your institution to create entry points for other people who are not yet part of climate solutions to work alongside you? So successful climate storytelling focuses at least in part on hope. What is your take then on the kind of new wave of climate doomerism that seems to be peddled with increasing regularity in the last year or so, two years? (laughs) (sighs) It is a hard line to both be hopeful and also be sincere to our continuously updated climate models for what we can expect. Because where we are today, looking back at our greenhouse gas emissions and their rise in 2018, looking at how that is going to influence our planet and our most historically targeted and most ecologically vulnerable communities, it can feel really hopeless and there is sincere grief and fear that come with that and you have to be truthful to that but you can't let that be all-consuming you have to have some sort of light some sort of hope if you are going to invite people to act you can be sincere and frank about the climate impacts and how terrifying they are and simultaneously say, but this is a future that we are creating together, right? Every day is an opportunity for action. Just because we have been inactive as a globe until December 9th, 2019, doesn't mean that December 10th can't come with an incredible action because that's the beauty of humans, right? We can create the future. That is how powerful our species is. Mm-hmm. and. That has to come with hope, or else we're going to keep making decisions that imperil our planet and its population. Hmm. 
Well, you might, you know, this is at least what I say, or maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> but uh, history also has nonlinearities, right? Uh, yeah. And that's one of the things that I think history has to offer. Um, and it's exactly as you say, you know, sometimes change can be very, very abrupt indeed. And I think a lot has already changed in the last year, maybe. I mean, maybe this is just me <laughs> trying to convince myself. Um. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that perception and mm -hmm. public action has changed so much mm -hmm. in the past year, uh, whether that translates to government and corporate action yeah. is mm -hmm. something to be told. But people are here. They're showing up. It's mm -hmm. the leaders that now need to respond. That would be ideal, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so you operate in areas of obviously academia, right? Activism, also policy. We're on the top policy people in climate change, according to recent lists. Uh, creative storytelling. Um, how have each of these spaces informed your transition to the others, right? And which changes? What changes, and and what stays the same? Sometimes it is hard to juggle different roles within a overall profession on climate action, right? Mm. I am an advocate for climate action. I am hopefully someone who helps to inform better policy. I am someone who teaches and, you know, both high school up to my class and a couple of hours of undergraduate students. And I'm also a storyteller. And I think all of those things influence each other um, and hopefully push towards the same end goal of creating a platform that everyone can be part of climate change adaptation in America. Mm -hmm. That storytelling means I'm inviting people to work with me to adapt America um, through education, right? I'm learning from my students and hopefully my students are learning from me so that they can become my colleagues and we can work together. My policy um, work at large is hopefully me informing decision makers through testifying, through having meetings so that they are making better decisions of the overarching framework within all mm. of us are working. And my academic research is providing the information that helps me inform policy, that helps me educate, that helps me tell stories. So all of these, even though on my to-do lists are very siloed in what I have to do, <laughs> inform each other. Because I can't see a future where I can only do one of those things. You have to have all of those components to achieve that goal of creating an inclusive climate change adaptation story for the country that I call home. Do you feel a responsibility as an academic then, Let's, for example, because I think that was one of your starting points, right? Um, or maybe you were an activist first, but do you feel a responsibility then to cross over into that other sphere? Um, and do you feel that others should as well, or could? I, as an individual, certainly feel a responsibility and every day question if I am doing enough and oftentimes end the day with I'm not doing enough, so how mm -hmm. can I do more? And if I was only in the hard academic researcher lane and not doing public outreach and not 
collaborating with decision makers and not being an educator, I think that I would feel guilty that I wasn't doing as much as I could Mm -hmm. to invite more people Mm -hmm. to work with me, to realize my research beyond a peer-reviewed publication, Mm -hmm. Um, being able to share it as broadly as I can and to translate that research into action because research for research in the climate field today is I think really irresponsible because our time is up. We have to figure out how to translate our research into action. All of that being said, that doesn't mean that you have to do it alone and that doesn't mean that every academic has to also be an advocate and a communicator and an educator. It is an incredible thing that humans work together. You can reach out to your colleagues in the School of Communication and figure out how someone else can translate your research into something more widely available. And you can work with someone else who has a training in education and is an incredible educator to figure out how you can create lesson plans for your research. You don't have to do it all. and. In fact, it's probably to the detriment of your mental health to try to do it all. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Um, I think one thing, though, that's very valuable is to just try. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's the first step that a lot of people miss. Um, Certainly a lot of people in academia, which, of course, I know best, um, just trying to reach a popular audience. Mm. Um, Sometimes it's deeply, deeply, deeply frustrating, as, as we both know, but it is possible, right? So... Just, just go for it. And you have to keep trying, <laughs> yeah. right? If academia has taught me anything, is that for every 50 things you apply to, there is one thing that will come to fruition. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you keep trying to get an op-ed in a newspaper, if you keep trying to apply for more public speaking opportunities. Maybe you get rejected 10 times and that's okay mm-hmm. because the 11th time you'll get that opportunity and you'll reach one person, 10 people, a thousand people that would have never heard your research before. And those people can then go on to make some type of impact with the knowledge that you shared with them. That's another thing. Of course, you have to believe that your research actually is valuable right. <laughs> in yes. the first place, right? Yeah. Which is another important thing to stress. If you're doing work on climate, it's, it's a good bet that it's valuable. <laughs> and everyone who is doing climate work that is aimed at climate action and making more informed choices that are Mm -hmm. inclusive and driven by justice. You're doing amazing work and it's hard and we need you. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting to sort of hear that the, it's not really the boundaries between these sort of siloed fields, as you put it, it's more about the possibilities for collaboration that are really already there. Absolutely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine doing work on my own, right? Mm -hmm. I have hundreds of collaborators. I have my students who are my collaborators. I have community champions that are my collaborators. I have other academics that are collaborators. I have photographers and videographers that are my collaborators, right? I couldn't imagine doing climate work alone because chances are you're probably telling yourself the wrong story if you're the only person you're talking to mm-hmm. so being able to you know create that big vision to figure out how to make it a reality with 10 other people who have radically different trainings and backgrounds and 
geographies to their lives than you do, you're going to come up with a much better vision, a much better solution, mm -hmm. and ultimately a more inclusive action that you get to do. Yeah. Because I, as a graduate student, I approach my own research with the, an academic curiosity, but also like this very sort of urgent personal stake in the, the future of policy, the future of everything. Um, and I'm wondering if you have suggestions, because I'm thinking there might be others who feel similarly, um, for how graduate students, based on your own experience, can balance these sort of policy interests, maybe less traditionally academic interests with the demands of being in graduate school. Yeah, and graduate school is all-consuming, right? <laughs> it is, it's really hard to do other things alongside your work. And I would say be thoughtful about what you want to do if you think that you're not getting enough storytelling in your graduate program apply to storytelling grants, apply to science telling programs that'll help you develop those skills. And at the end of that training or that grant, mm -hmm. give you an opportunity to share your own work and share your story in a way that you wouldn't otherwise get as a graduate student. So we live in a time today, thankfully, where there are a lot of opportunities for um, students, for academics to hone their education and their communication skills, right? If you feel that you are not great at outreach either to students or to a general public, there are these great public speaking courses and advocacy courses that organizations like AAAS, right, can help you hone those skills, give you an outlet to write your first blog post or be a educator for a Skype a scientist session, right? There are all of these opportunities that if you identify your goal, I want to be a better communicator, I want to be a better educator, I want to be a better policy influencer, then go and see what your department has to offer and then push past that and go to Google, go mm -hmm. to organizations that you think are doing really cool work. That's why I applied to a National Geographic grant because I thought Nat Geo was doing really cool work. I Googled it and I found this grant application and I applied <laughs> to it on a plane. And that led me to all of these different pathways that I've taken mm -hmm. in the interceding five years. And I would have never done that if I had only stayed at Cambridge and had only been focused in my geography department there. Yeah, sure. Because I think at least in, in some academic spaces, things like blog posts, things like um, sort of more broad-reaching communication skills aren't given as much weight. Yeah, yeah, For I sure. absolutely. When I was at Cambridge, um, and this is a real challenge both as a graduate student and also I think in academia at large, even when you reach that professor position, if that's something that you want to do, it's hard because the system values things like peer review publications and particular types of outreach much higher than reaching a general public and inviting people in to work with you. Those things are not valued in our current system. And it's really unfortunate and it shouldn't stop you. Mm. You should keep doing it anyway because 
at the end of the day, it won't much matter if you have 10 peer-reviewed publications if only five people have read them and our world is on fire, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you have a blog post that 500 people mm -hmm. read, they have a better understanding of mm -hmm. environmental history related to this particular thing that they read in the news yesterday, and they have better context to talk to their friends about it, to talk to their parents about it, maybe to go to a town hall meeting in New Jersey suburbia and bring that up, right? You have no idea how sharing your research will manifest itself in positive ways. So you have to right, fire at all opportunities that you can. Mm -hmm. And you know, even if things are not, at least in my experience, if things are not adequately valued in academia, which is absolutely the case. and. All the online stuff I've done is, is at the very best it amounts to maybe a cherry on the cake, you know, <laughs> at the very best. But, you know, you never know the kinds of opportunities that you get from it, as you've experienced so richly in your mm -hmm. life. Um, Nonlinearities, I guess, again, right? Just these surprising kind of weird twists and turns, people reaching out to you. Uh, with stuff that you would never have imagined. So. Oh, yeah, that's um, exactly how I have developed myself as someone working in the cultural heritage and climate change space. In 2016, maybe, I wrote an op-ed for The Guardian, and someone who was working at the National Trust for Historic Preservation mm. read that op-ed, emailed me out of the blue, and said, hey, I really like what you're writing, let's collaborate on something. And I collaborated with the National Trust on America's Eroding Edges. They published all of my blog posts and audio recordings, and I'm working with them now to reach hundreds of historic preservationists across mm. the country for rising tides. Mm. And that would have never happened if I hadn't written that op-ed. Because before that individual reached out to me, I had never heard of the National Trust for Historic mm -hmm. Preservation. And now I have many, many friends and colleagues in the historic preservation world, and we get to work together on keeping history above water, on mm -hmm. ensuring that historic preservationists can connect to community champions on climate action. All of that comes from doing something outside of more traditional publishing and work-related opportunities in academia. Hmm. So a very broad question, maybe too broad to, to finish this off, but um, you've, you've drawn on your expertise really on the past, right, to, to inform your projects that are designed to confront really our future. And first of all, I'll say that I think a lot of people who are historians or historically inclined are a little uncomfortable with that, frankly, right? Um, the past is a foreign country and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, but in your opinion, does the past tell us anything about where we're headed? And if so, what? Well, I'm not claiming to be a historian here, mm -hmm. so please no one judge me. Um, <laughs> and I will take that as an opportunity to instead talk about my family's personal history and sure. use that mm. as the lens of broader history in the world. Mm. And I think for me, I look to my grandparents who went through the Holocaust, who went through refugee camps and came to the United States. And they created community, they created pathways to keep their culture and their tradition and their heritage alive so that I today can practice the same traditions that they did in the 1920s. And in a very me, different time and place. In a very different time and place with 
many points throughout that where those traditions were threatened into non-existence, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. if the Holocaust was successful, I wouldn't be able to light Shabbat candles on Friday nights, right? And I see this history as a really hopeful history for our climate reality today, that even in the darkest of times, there is resilience if you support individuals to build community, to realize their own visions, and most importantly, I think, create spaces for individuals to pass down the traditions and the culture and the heritage that keeps people caring, right? Mm -hmm. You have to care about something if you want to save it. So seeing what my family and my community has done over the past six decades and where we are today, I look to my colleagues who, if given the opportunity, will pass down their traditions of sustainability, of uh, indigenous food security, and how you can use your culture and your traditions to live in a more climate sustainable way, then we have a bright future. Mm -hmm. But only if we create those pathways, those spaces, and elevate those voices. Mm -hmm. So there's a precedent, and that's just one of hundreds that you can point to that if you provide the opportunity for people to rise to the occasion, if those in power are able to create those spaces for communities to create actionable visions for a just and sustainable future, you'll get it. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not hopeful on December 9th right now as I look to DC and I look to America's climate inaction at UN climate negotiations this week, mm -hmm. but I am hopeful for the future because I have hundreds of friends and colleagues that will do just what I described if given the support that they need. A lot mm -hmm. of people doing good work. A lot of people, so many people doing good work. More people doing good work than people pushing inaction. Doctor? Professor Kerman, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>